Let us begin in the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Amen. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Well, welcome to another edition of Seeds of Truth. This is your host, Joe Holcraft, coming to you from KKXX Studios, Chico Life Radio, 104.5 FM and AM 930. It is great to be with you another Tuesday evening where we continue our reflections into the book of Revelation. We concluded yesterday evening with a discussion on Ephesus, how we read Revelation chapter 2, verses uh, 1 to 7. And I was talking about the geographical region of Ephesus. And without further ado, what I really want to do this evening is just jump right back into uh, what we were talking about. And we do so within the larger uh, context of looking at these seven churches, the first of which is the letter to the church of Ephesus, and trying to take these letters and apply them to our everyday life. And so what I want to do now is apply this letter to Ephesus and what it might mean for us today. Now, going back into um, the verses themselves, we read in verse 2 of chapter 2, I know your works, your toil, and your patient endurance, and how you cannot bear evil men, but have tested those who call themselves apostles but are not, and found them to be false. Some have pointed out that the toil and patient endurance that John is talking about here of the Ephesians might actually be linked to their ongoing struggle to maintain their harbor. Now, I think this is pretty interesting because when you go into the history of what was going on there, river sediment would often fill in the port with silt, right? This was a major threat to the port, and thus a threat to the very heart of the life and economy of Ephesus. See, Jesus very well might have been talking to the very heart and life of the economy of Ephesus in these verses. If we were to offer a correlation, losing the port would be similar to something like the city of Hollywood losing the entertainment business, right? Ephesus and the Ephesians were truly in danger of, quote-unquote, being moved out of its place, as Christ warns in Revelation chapter 2, verse 5. In fact, over the years, the silting has continued without any dredging, and as a result, uh, the city now is six miles away uh, from the sea today. So our our initial reflection, while it be uh, practical, is necessary because we should appreciate once again what's going on during the time of Christ. Moreover, God takes the natural virtues, natural talents, if you will, and helps us use them for His glory, huh? I mean, the Ephesians, applying their hard work ethic to understanding theology, became extremely knowledgeable about their faith. To think about how the Ephesians, applying their hard work ethic to understand theology, became all the more knowledgeable about their faith, is to better understand why Paul stayed so long in Ephesus teaching to the Ephesians, right? Taking them deeper than any other church into his rich knowledge of Scripture. They were good students, and Paul's letter to the Ephesians contains some of the most profound theology found in any of his epistles. Why? Because these Christians, again, were his best students. And so the Ephesians, heeding Paul's warning to them, let no one deceive you with empty words, uh, prided themselves in their knowledge of the faith and their rejection of unorthodox teaching. 
Christ himself commends them for rejecting the teachers of the Nicolaitans, right? The Nicolaitans were uh, followers of the heretic Nicholas, who had been one of the deacons chosen by the apostles in the book of Acts. If you were to go to uh, Acts chapter 6, verse 5, this is what we read. Incidentally, if you want to become famous, <laughs> just follow a bad teaching, get some followers of the teaching you follow, and there's either going to be ISM next to it, ism, or IANS, right? <laughs> because in the end, this is what heresy becomes, someone who followed someone who followed bad teaching. Now, it's interesting in this case that Christ tells the Ephesians that they must overcome these heretics. The Greek word nikau, where we get the word Nicholas or name Nicholas, literally translates as overcome. So Christ seems intentional with his words here as he's talking about rejecting the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Overcome, right? Overcome their teaching. Nevertheless, we should add, orthodoxy is not enough. What do I mean? Well, there is a tendency for Christians and Catholics to pride themselves on being orthodox in such a way that they actually become uncharitable to their brothers and sisters in Christ. They chronicle the false teachings of others and spread sensational stories of unfaithful Catholics or unfaithful Christians causing further division within the church. Orthodoxy is not an option. It is a prerequisite. But when we spend our time deploring the sins of others, we are not following Christ at all, and we must repent. Why is Christ talking so frequently in this book about repentance? Well, first we ought to consider what the word repentance means. It comes from the Greek metanoia, which literally means to change one's mind, to change one's attitude or mentality. In the New Testament, as many of us know, it is found especially in the preaching of the Baptist, our Lord, and the Apostles, where it refers to a radical change of direction, turning from sin to faith in God. Now, although this word appears most often in the New Testament in relation to initial conversion, it also refers to repentance in the course of Christian life. If you're to go to 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verses 9 to 11, and 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 21, this is what we see. And this is important because while there is a tendency to look at metanoia as a one-time event, Paul also wants us to see that conversion is gradual. It takes a lifetime to become the person that God is calling us to be. When Jesus says, be perfect like your heavenly Father is perfect, we know we are never going to attain perfection this side of heaven. What is he calling us to do? To constantly change, to conform our lives to Christ, to always close that gap, if you will, from the person that we are and the person that we ought to be. Now, in Revelation, the word repent appears seven times in the letters to the churches, these letters that we are talking about now, summoning Christians to repent of defective love. Okay, that is uh, the verse we had in verse 5, this call to repent of defective love. In chapter 3, verse 3, we have this call to repent of incomplete works. In chapter 2, verses 15 to 16, we have this call to repent from erroneous teaching. Chapter 2, verses 21 to 22, this call we have to repent of any kind of idolatry. 
chapter 3, verse 16, lukewarmness, if you will. And chapter 3, verse 19, unwarranted self-satisfaction. Now, something else should be said about this word repentance, because it is that word that is tied to the essence of the gospel. Repent and believe the kingdom of heaven is at hand. What does the word gospel mean? Well, it comes from the Greek evangelion, which literally translates as what? Good news, yes, but transforming news. Good news that transforms and transforms for the better. Put those two words together. Repentance, metanoia, change of heart, and gospel, good news that is transforming news. What we arrive at is the only way we can achieve the gospel is if we what? Repent. Because in a repentant heart, we are transformed in God's love. We must remember that the word repentance, while it means being contrite, at the same time means resolve to change. This new direction, this new mentality points to this, right? This resolve to change, to change one's life. This is what it's about. And the only way you can do that is if you allow God's transforming love to enfold you and ultimately change you for the better. Okay, so this is what is behind the word repentance and why it's so important for all of us to have this word before us each and every day, at the very least in our rearview mirror as we go through our day. Okay, now chapter 2, verse 7, this call we have to eat the fruit of the tree of life. It's interesting. Uh, There is one particular church father, a Syrian church father by the name of Aphrahat, who writes this, and I love this quote. This is something, once again, that uh, Michael Barber quotes in his book coming soon. So the fruit of the tree of life is given as food to the faithful and to virgins, and to those that do the will of God has the door been opened and the way made plain. And the fountain flows and gives drink to the thirsty. The table is laid and the supper prepared. The fatted ox is slain and the cup of redemption mixed. The feast is prepared, and the bridegroom at hand soon take place. So here again, this language that comes to us from this great Syrian father was understood as a reference to uh, the Eucharist, right? Another reference to the Eucharist, where our Lord enters into this kind of bridal union with our very souls, such a beautiful and profound image that we were talking about in our opening weeks. Okay, Let us turn to verse 8, chapter 2, verse 8, verses 8 to 11, the letter to Smyrna. And to the angel of the church in Smyrna write the words of the first and the last who died and came to life. I know your tribulation and your poverty, but you are rich, and the slander of those who say that they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Wow, strong words there. Do not fear what you are about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison, that you may be tested. And for ten days you will have tribulation. Be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. He who conquers shall not be hurt by the second death. So what's going on here? Well, there were some very anti-Christian Jews in Smyrna who became enraged that so many people in the city were converting to Christianity. These Jews persuaded the people of the city to persecute the Christians. This is what Jesus is referring to 
when he speaks of the slander of those who say they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. The point here is quite simple. Anyone who persecutes the church is not a true Jew. The reference to 10 days in verse 10 is taken from a book already alluded to in Daniel. If you were to go to Daniel chapter uh, 1, verse 12, we read, Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah are tested for how many days? Ten days. We see how their captors marvel at their faithfulness and at the way God blesses them and therefore allow them to continue to practice their faith. Christ applies this lesson to Christian suffering. Huh? Christians are warned that persecution is coming, but comforted in knowing that the period of suffering is short compared to the eternal reward awaiting them on the other side of it. In the end, those who persevere will receive something much greater than earthly comfort, the crown of life. Brothers and sisters, why do we work at something so hard, sweat 24-7 to achieve first place? Well, to wear the crown. Is there anything greater than to wear the crown of life? I remember growing up running track, and we would run for three, four hours a day for one, hopefully, five-and-a-half-minute race. And it was all worth it. Why? To wear the crown of victory. Well, you know the verses from Paul. Fight the good fight. Persevere, and you will come out on top. You will win the race. This is what it's about. And so what we are made to understand is what is necessary is suffering, right? What is necessary is the trial, is the pain. We need to persevere. If we are going to wear the crown, we need to persevere. We do it in so many other things, right? Why not do it in faith? Why not do it in faith? Let God surprise you. You know, it has been said, if you can't see yourself committing the sins you come across in the Bible, it's because you haven't understood them properly. <laughs> so what would test the early Christians so severely? Well, it helps to know that at the time of the book of Revelation, the Jews received a favor status in the Roman Empire. Christians could therefore avoid suffering if they compromised their faith just a little to appease those Jews who opposed them. Yet Jesus makes it clear that a compromise of faith is nothing less than a rejection of him. So my dear friends, this is a lesson for all of us who might be tempted to compromise or hide our faith in an effort to make our lives, quote unquote, easier. After all, no one wants to be labeled rigid or, or radical, right? Christ's words to the Smyrnians are as relevant today as they ever have been. Jesus promised persecution. Jesus promised suffering, but he also promised the crown of life. Amen to that. How about verse 11? In verse 11, we find the term, the second death used. What is that a reference to? Well, this term refers to the destruction of the soul in hell, right? If you were to go to Revelation chapter 20, verses 13 to 15, this is what we read certainly a fate far worse than physical death. In times of persecution, my friends, this is important lesson. Each 
Christian is given a choice. Much like Adam was given a choice, the question that was posed, what do you want, earthly life or supernatural life? To choose earthly life means a death worse than physical death, the second death, which takes place in the lake of fire where the wicked shall be tormented with fire and brimstone and the smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever and they have no rest day or night. Revelation chapter 14, verses 10 to 11, right? So this passage is not simply relevant in times of persecution. At all times, Christians must remain detached from this earthly life, keeping in mind that this is not their ultimate home. This is simply a test. We should not make worldly things and comfort our priority, but rather hold them with a very loose grip. As you've heard me say before, quoting our local pastor, there will not be a U-Haul following our hearse, right? Less is more in every way. Now, before we jump into our next reflection in the letter to Pergamum, I wanted to reflect on a very important figure in the history of the church by the name of St. Polycarp, by far the church of Smyrna's most illustrious martyr. As a young man, St. Polycarp may have heard the book of Revelation the very first time it was read to the church of Smyrna. According to St. Irenaeus, who saw and heard him during his youth in Smyrna, Polycarp talked about his conversations with the Apostle John and others who had uh, seen Christ. So Polycarp himself was in the company of John the Evangelist. He was appointed, that is, Polycarp, a bishop of Smyrna, by first-generation companions of Jesus. How about that? Alongside of Ignatius of Antioch and, and Papias, Polycarp was one of the most important of what we call the Apostolic Fathers, the Gospel's first echo, if you will. He received a letter from St. Ignatius himself as Ignatius was on his way to martyrdom in Rome, and he himself wrote a letter to the Philippians. The Roman proconsul put Polycarp to death by fire and sword at the age of 86 for refusing to burn incense to the emperor. Now, what I want to do is read from the Acts of Martyrs. If we want to capture what this man was all about, this Bishop of Smyrna, St. Polycarp, I thought we would be well served to go to the Acts of Martyrs and to actually read the account of the martyrdom of Polycarp. It is powerful. So this is what we will uh, more or less close with this evening. And so tomorrow we will pick up with the third letter to Pergamum. Okay, so this is the martyrdom of Polycarp. The most admirable Polycarp, when he first heard that he was sought for, was not disturbed, but resolved to remain in the city. However, in deference to the wish of many, he was persuaded to leave. He departed, therefore, to a country house not far from the city. His pursuers then set out along with horsemen, as if going out against a robber. About evening, they found him lying down in the upper room of a certain little house from which he might have escaped. But he refused, saying, The will of God be done. Which, oh, by the way, my friends, is the ultimate prayer, is it not? So when he heard that they had arrived, he went down and spoke with them. And as those that were present marveled at his age and constancy, some of them said, Was so much effort made to capture such a venerable man? Immediately he ordered that something to eat and drink should be set before them, 
as much as they cared for, while he asked them to allow him an hour to pray without disturbance. Isn't that fascinating? Here you have his captors coming to take him away, and he asks the host to cater to them so that he might pray. So the narrative continues. Now, as soon as he had ceased praying, they set him upon an ass and conducted him into the city. Does that sound familiar, my friends? <laughs> and the iron ark Herod, accompanied by his father Nicetes, both riding in a chariot, met him. And taking him up into the chariot, they seated themselves beside him and tried to persuade him, saying, What harm is there in saying, Lord Caesar, and in sacrificing with the other ceremonies observed on such occasions, and so gain safety? At first he gave them no answer. And when they continued to urge him, he said, I shall not do as you advise me. Having no hope of persuading him, they began to speak bitter words to him and cast him so violently out of the chariot that he dislocated his leg by the fall. But without being disturbed and as if suffering nothing, he went eagerly forward with all haste and was conducted to the stadium where the tumult was so great that there was no possibility of being heard. Now, as Polycarp was entering into the stadium, there came to him a voice from heaven saying, Be strong and show thyself a man, Polycarp. No one saw who it was that spoke to him, but those of our brothers who were present heard the voice. And as he was brought forward, the tumult became great when they heard that Polycarp was captured. The proconsul approached and asked him if he was Polycarp. On his confessing that he was, the proconsul tried to persuade him to deny Christ, saying, Have respect for your old age and swear by the fortune of Caesar, repent and say, Away with the atheists. But Polycarp, gazing with a stern expression on all the crowd of the wicked heathen then in the stadium, and waving his hand toward them, while with groans he looked up to heaven, saying, Away with the atheists. Then the proconsul urged him, Swear, and I will set you at liberty. Reproach Christ, Polycarp declared. Eighty-six years have I served him, and he never did me any injury. How then can I blaspheme my king and my savior? When the proconsul pressed him yet again and said, Swear by the fortune of Caesar, he answered, Since you are so intent that I should swear by the fortune of Caesar, and since you pretend not to know who I am and what I am, hear me declare with boldness, I am a Christian, and if you wish to learn what the doctrines of Christianity are, appoint me a day, and you shall hear them. The proconsul then said to him, I have wild beasts at hand, to these will I throw you unless you repent. But he answered, Call them then, for we are not accustomed to repent of what is good in order to adopt what is evil. And it is well for me to be changed from what is evil to what is righteous. But again the proconsul said to him, If you are not afraid of the wild beasts, I will cause you to be consumed by fire if you will not repent. But Polycarp said, You threaten me with fire that burns for an hour, and after a little is extinguished, but you are ignorant of the fire of the coming judgment and of eternal punishment reserved for the ungodly. But why do you delay? Bring forth what you wish. The proconsul was astonished and sent his herald to proclaim three times in the midst of the stadium, Polycarp has confessed that he is a Christian. This proclamation having been made by the herald, the whole crowd, both of the heathen and Jews who lived in Smyrna, cried out with uncontrollable fury and in a loud voice, 
This is the great teacher of Asia, the father of the Christians and the destroyer of our gods. He who has been teaching many not to sacrifice or to worship the gods. The multitudes immediately gathered together wood. And when the funeral pile was ready, Polycarp, laying aside all his garments and loosing his girdle, sought also to take off his sandals, something he was not used to doing because every one of the faithful had always been eager to touch his skin. For on account of his holy life, he was, even before his martyrdom, adorned with every kind of good. Immediately then they surrounded him with those substances which had been prepared for the funeral pile. But when they were about to fix him with nails, he said, Leave me as I am, for he who gives me strength to endure the fire will also enable me, without your securing me by nails, to remain without moving in the pile. They did not nail him then, but simply bound him. And placing his hands behind him, he was bound like a distinguished ram chosen from a great flock for sacrifice and prepared to be an acceptable burnt offering unto God. He looked up to heaven and said, O Lord God Almighty, the Father of your beloved and blessed Son, Jesus Christ, by whom we have received the knowledge of you, the God of angels and powers and of every creature, and of the whole race of the righteous who live before you, I give you thanks that you have counted me worthy of this day and this hour, that I should be counted in the number of your martyrs in the cup of your Christ, to the resurrection of eternal life, both of soul and body, through the incorruption given by the Holy Spirit. Among them may I be accepted this day before you as a rich and acceptable sacrifice, as you, the ever-truthful God, have foreordained, have revealed beforehand to me, and now have fulfilled. I praise you for all things. I bless you. I glorify you. Along with the everlasting and heavenly Jesus Christ, your beloved Son, with him, to you and the Holy Spirit, be glory now and forever. Amen. Wow. When he had pronounced this amen and so finished his prayer, those who were appointed for the purpose kindled the fire. And as the flame blazed forth in great fury, we beheld a great miracle. For the fire shaping itself into the form of an ark, like the sail of a ship when filled with wind, encircled the body of the martyr. And he appeared within not like flesh that is burnt, but as bread that is baked, where is gold and silver glowing in a furnace. Moreover, we smelled a sweet odor, as if frankincense or some other precious spices had been smoking there. When those wicked men saw that his body could not be consumed by the fire, they commanded an executioner to go near and pierce him through with a dagger. This done, there came forth a dove and a great quantity of blood, so that the fire was extinguished, and all the people wondered that there should be such a difference between the unbelievers and the elect, of whom this most admirable polycarp was one, having in her own time been an apostolic and prophetic teacher and bishop of the Catholic Church that is in Smyrna. For every word that went out of his mouth either has been or shall yet be accomplished. Amen. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, all glory be to the Father, and to the Son, and to the Holy Spirit, as it was in the beginning, is now, and ever shall be, world without end. Amen, and God bless you. Thanks for listening to Seeds of Truth, heard every evening, Monday through Friday at 5.30 here on KKXX. If you'd like to hear this program or find out how you can help support Seeds of Truth, 
The website is joeholcraft.org.